We are Danny and Marcus Delalio, and welcome to Deep Diving Delalios. Welcome back to part two of United 93. In our last episode, we went through the basics of what was going on the days before and what our government knew, well, more like didn't know about the hijacking of United 93, because while the FAA was aware that this hijacking had gone on, NORAD, our air defense would not know until after the plane had crashed in the field in Pennsylvania. Um, So we haven't gone through the hijacking yet or anything we're going to be talking about that in this episode. As always, huge trigger warning. Um, this is this was a really hard episode to script. I imagine it's going to be a hard episode to make and um, probably a really hard one to listen to. And we will have actual audio from that day as well. If you are not in the right mind space to hear anything about hijacking September the 11th, death, anything like that, please click away. Um, we would love your viewership in another video, uh, but if you're not in the right headspace, please don't watch. Flight 93 has always stuck out to me as kind of like the passengers aboard that flight, like like the title, Let's Roll. Mm-hmm. I'm, those guys are heroes. Just to recap last episode real quick, although you should go back and watch that. Um, we The hijackers have all boarded before 8 a.m. all of the flights. They have surpassed all of security. The box cutters they had on them were legal at the time to carry on board. Um, we did touch on passenger Todd Beamer in our last episode. On September the 10th, he'd actually returned home to the, to the United States from Italy with his wife after being gifted a trip for his work ethic by his company. And he was only heading out for a day trip to San Francisco from Newark. Um, and he was supposed to be back that afternoon. So we, we touched on him. Um, we also touched on the fact that there were fighter jets in the air at the point in time when United 93 was hijacked at 9.28 in the morning. Um, however, they were headed in the wrong directions and we detailed that in the last episode. Um, when United 93 went down, not only were they over 100 miles away from the aircraft, um, which would have, was only 20 minutes away from Washington and their intended target, which we believe to maybe have been the White House or the U.S. Capitol building. A lot of people really think that it was the U.S. Capitol building. And um, at that point in time, no order had been given out to shoot aircraft down either. So I'm not sure what the plan was when they found them. And to get back away from the East Coast all the way back to Pennsylvania would have been just about as long, if not longer, um, to scramble more jets. So as I was saying in the last episode, there were 37 calls made that day from United 93 from the time its hijacking began at 928 until it crashed about a half hour later. Like the other hijackings, those on board reported that the hijackers wielded knives, the hijackers had entered the cockpit, the hijackers had a bomb, and they wore red bandanas. Now, the passengers were all forced to the back of the aircraft, just like in the other flights. However, unlike the other flights, these passengers would only report three hijackers. Now, keep in mind, there were five hijackers on all of the flights, except for this one. This one had four. We were missing one. We talked about the fifth hijacker in the last episode and how he was denied entry into the United States. Okay, so the total side note. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard or read anything about the red bandanas. Oh, really? No, I haven't. No. Have you watched United 93, the movie? No, no. I have you never haven't? watched that. No, no. Oh, we should sit and watch yeah. that. It's very historically I... accurate, and a lot of people played themselves. Ben Sliney, 
um, who had just been promoted. Um, I'll talk about his position in a little bit here. It was his first day on the job, and he would play himself in that movie. I... Okay. What? Yeah, because like I said, the red reds never really meant anything to me. Like I said, even when we were talking about going overseas, because before uh, 2021... Um, I was in contention to be uh, deployed mm -hmm. over there. So, well, yeah. Let's Google. It's in the commission report, I know that. Okay. Yeah, the, wearing, the hijackers are wearing red bandanas. Signature of Islamic Jihad and attacks on Western tourists. Although Islam is symbolized by green, it appears the red headbands or red bandanas are customary badges of murders and or Islamic Jihad. Okay. That may, that makes a little bit more sense. And what they're talking about is not like the red paisley, like the crips or the oh, bloods no, or anything no, like it's that. Not like, yeah, yeah, you're you're no. talking you're talking about like just a, a, a red, red fabric. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The passengers were forced to back the aircraft. Unlike the other planes, though, those aboard they reported just the three hijackers. Okay, mm -hmm. not a fourth at all. Not, and then that led into Ziad was a missing person after nine eleven. So that led into the, was he a victim or was he the pilot? Now, he was the only man trained with those men that, to be the pilot. You know, we had the muscle hijackers. We went through this in the first episode. And then the pilot hijackers. So he was the only one trained for that. Um, now, it is believed, and this is mentioned in the 9-11 Commission, that perhaps he was already in the cockpit, seated in the jump seat inside the cockpit before the flight had even taken off. Now, FAA rules allow use of this seat by documented and approved individuals, usually air carrier FAA personnel, or maybe, I mean, back then he could have just shown interest in learning how to fly a commercial airliner and, mm. and, and talk about how he's training to be a pilot. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, honestly, the jump seat is, is called the jump seat because it's usually like, okay, you're on a puddle jumper, you're going from one airport to the other, you're another pilot. You're probably going to be up there, which, by the way, it is a very uncomfortable seat. Is it? Yes. However, back then, I mean, we it, didn't. It literally could have been. I at that point, it could have been just a, a 15 year old kid who said, "I, I'm thinking about becoming a, a pilot." pilot to yeah. as an offhanded comment to one of the one of the stewardesses, and he would have been put into the cockpit. You know, yeah. it's such an eerie. Thing to think of though that he was already inside the cockpit when they took off do you know what I mean mm -hmm. like it game over you know like which I mean and to give like I said so I'm skeptical skeptical of everybody when it comes to somebody uh like this reluctant terrorist as he is often um we touched on that in the last episode he tried to leave supposedly he tried to leave at least twice and we'll be diving into that more in a later episode too mm -hmm. in my opinion mm-hmm if he was as reluctant as most things would say, if I was that reluctant, I probably would have told the pilots. You know, and I had thought of that this morning too, of like, what if he was trying to warn? I Like, I don't know. But then what if he was gung-ho for it too? Like, I mean, we yeah, don't know. Yeah, that's the other thing. Maybe that, that, that mm -hmm. 90 and a 65 was literally just, he was just trying to see how fast a car would go or yeah, something Yeah, because like there's speculation he that he was... Um, trying to get himself arrested before he went 90 in a 65 mile per hour zone in Maryland where the laws are just so loose. So yeah, it's, it's so, mm -hmm. we talked about that in the last episode. By the time the hijacking had begun at 928, both planes had hit the towers already and the third was just minutes away from hitting the Pentagon. 
We can't go through each and every call, obviously, that happened on United 93 um, from the passengers on board, but I'm going to try to piece together the events of what happened on board by utilizing the passengers' calls. Disclaimer, keep in mind, a lot of these calls weren't recorded. We will play a couple that were recorded, but a lot of these are just taken through the gist of the calls taken from the FBI interviewing the loved ones of those that mm-hmm. spoke with them or the officials that spoke with them. We are we are not here to um, exploit any of the the heartfelt messages sent from yeah. the air to the ground uh, just towards the family. Most of this is going to be about um, exactly what the terrorists were doing at the exact time that it was going on. It is not... Yeah. Yeah, it's so. like listing out um, the events of the aircraft. And I thought about summarizing it. I thought about the different ways to do it. But I just think hearing, like, their words, you know, is more the gist of everything. Yeah, and it's more accurate than anything that we could sum up. So first-class passenger Tom Burnett called his wife, Deanna, from the back of the plane now. He had been, obviously, up further at 9.30, and they spoke for about 28 seconds. Now, Deanna had watched what was happening on the news and had even gone to check her husband's flight number when the phone started ringing. I will say, concerning Tom and Deanna's call, it was confusing to me because he calls his wife three times from the aircraft. I had a hard time knowing because different articles reported different things and different things from the 9-11 commission. We know the commission's not perfect as well. Knowing which phone call had which part of it, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. So when he calls her originally, according to an article I read by The Sun, which we're not really a fan of The Sun, but... In Deanna's words, she said that the first time he called her, he sounded really annoyed, honestly, that his plane had been hijacked. He'd had a really, really rough week. And, of course, well, but we were thinking at the time that hijackings were for a monetary gain, you yeah. know? So you'd just be like, dude. And like, yeah. also, like, pilots weren't killed during hijackings no. or anything. So we didn't know, like... Like, they thought it was a hostage situation. So he's like, God damn, like, I am stuck on this stupid plane. You know, it wasn't supposed to mean death. And so he spoke quietly to her, said that they'd been hijacked, and one of the passengers had been knifed in front of the others. She had been, as I said, a flight attendant for Delta Airlines, and she called her local police department right after speaking with Tom, who patched her through to the FBI immediately. She said, I could hear the FBI agent shouting to people around him as I was giving him the information. Um, He kept saying that it's a third plane. There's another plane. And the year before, September 11th, Tom, who was the COO of a corporation called the Thoratic Corporation, at the time of his death, had actually been attending mass daily in an attempt to address a sense of foreboding that he'd expressed to his wife. And he was actually seated next to Mark Bingham. Wow, okay. But at 9.35, flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw, she calls speed dial of United Airlines. She first gets through to a maintenance facility in San Francisco to a maintenance worker, but then a manager takes over the phone call halfway through, well, really quickly through, actually, and they spoke for almost six minutes. The flight attendant reporting from the back of the plane told the maintenance employees that hijackers were in the cabin behind the first-class curtain and in the cockpit. They had announced they had a bomb on the plane. Hijackers had pulled a knife. They had killed a flight attendant. The manager reported the emergency to his supervisor, who passed the information to United Airlines Crisis Center. The manager then instructed the airphone operator to try and reestablish contact with the plane, but the effort was unsuccessful. So at 9.37, Mark Bingham, who was a 31-year-old man at the time, he called his mother, Alice Hoagland. He was her only child. Mm. 
So Alice has a very interesting story. I would definitely recommend um, people to look into her. I believe she passed away kind of recently. Um, but she um, actually was a surrogate um, for her brother and sister-in-law at Interesting. one point. Yeah, so for them to have children, you know, kind of like if you ever watch Friends, like Phoebe Buffay did for her um, brother. Mm-hmm. But, like, I just, I just thought it was very interesting. So while he's... Like, they're not her biological children, obviously, but obviously Mark was, you know... Oh, yeah, you would still be incredibly close to them. Oh, my gosh. So, um, he spoke with a family friend first when the phone gets through, and then his aunt, and then finally his mother. His mom was actually a former United Airlines flight attendant herself. The phone rang at 6.44 in the morning, and I just rolled over. I thought, oh, I hope somebody gets that. And then I heard my sister-in-law, Kathy, run down the hall... And I realized that something was amiss. I heard Kathy say to whoever was on the hall telephone there, we love you too, Mark. Let me get your mom. And then she saw me there and she said, Alice, come talk to Mark. He's been hijacked. I was dumbfounded. I'd been awake for about five minutes. And I, it took me a little bit to register that. And I thought, Hi, and the whole images of Cuban hijackers sure. in the 60s and, and flying to Havana. And, so I, I was alarmed, but I was dumbfounded. I, I got the phone to my ear, and I heard Mark's voice, and he said, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I was amused that he had well, to identify himself with his last name, but he was quite a young businessman at the time, and he used to do that to his friends as well. I, I, real, I got gathered, gathered from, from his intensity and the fact that he was saying that, that he was pretty focused, uh, pretty preoccupied on something and, and, and trying, uh, trying hard for serenity or for, to, make, to make himself... Uh, so he could have some peace. That's right. Yes. Uh, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys on board who say they have a bomb. They've taken over the plane. He said, you believe me, don't you, Mom? And I said, yes, I believe you, Mark. Who are those guys? And, uh, and then he became distracted as if someone was talking to him. I knew something was in the works. Uh, and then he came back on the phone and he said, I, uh, uh, I'm speaking to you from the GTE air phone in the back of the plane. And so I knew then that he was not in first class. Uh, and I asked him again, well, I love you too, Mark. Uh, who are these guys? And he, he, uh, he, his, his voice faded away. She, she's very, she's talked quite openly about this entire day many, many times. She actually became an LGBTQ plus advocate after this. Um, Mark was a gay man, um, and uh, she, and he was also like super into sports. He was so. Like, he was just, like, a larger-than-life person, and he broke so many stereotypes, and there would be a documentary released about him after this called The Rugby Player. Um, he just really, he had so many different facets to his personality. At the same time, passenger Jeremy Glick called his mother-in-law's home where his wife was staying. The FBI interviewed the Glick family the next day on September 12th. I couldn't imagine me interviewed. There was one family that's interviewed on September 11th. Like, oh, my gosh. Can I, you imagine? Do you guys know that scene uh, at the end of Die Hard uh, where uh, his wife punches the reporter? In right. The face? That's what I would do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jeremy initially spoke to his mother-in-law, Joanne, and immediately asked to speak to his wife, Lizbeth. After giving the phone to Lizbeth, they contacted 911 via her cellular telephone. So they're mm. like on the phone, right? Jeremy first told Lizbeth that he loved her and said that Flight 93 had been hijacked by three Iranian-looking males with dark skin and bandanas. Ethnic types opposed to hippie types, like you were saying mm. earlier, not the, you know... Um, paisley kind one of the males stated that he was in possession of a bomb in a red box and one was armed with a knife jeremy advised elizabeth that the hijackers had herded the passengers to the rear of the plane and told them that they were going to blow up the plane the three hijackers then entered the cockpit of the plane jeremy advised elizabeth that he and four other male passengers were contemplating rushing the hijackers and asked elizabeth if there was if that was okay with her Elizabeth told Jeremy that she did not know if that was okay and asked Jeremy if the hijackers had guns, to which he replied they did not. In a joking manner, as if to ease her concern, he joked that he still had his butter knife from breakfast. Jeremy then seriously told Elizabeth that he and the other males were organizing to rush the hijackers. Jeremy told Lizbeth that he loved her and asked her not to hang up the telephone. The couple spoke for 20 minutes. The 9-11 Commission report states that Glick said that the passengers were voting on whether to storm the cockpit and retake control of the plane, and Liz kept the phone line open for a total of 126 minutes. At this time, Tom Burnett calls his wife, Deanna, for the second time, okay? This phone call lasted about 62 seconds. According to an FBI interview, the passenger that had been killed, that had been knifed, had died, so they had passed away. And he told his wife, Deanna, that they were in the cockpit, the terrorists. She asked her husband to sit still. Thomas asked his wife, who previously worked in the airline industry, she was a Delta Airlines flight attendant, um, what was the probability of a bomb actually being on the plane. Deanna didn't respond, and Tom stated that he didn't think there was a bomb because he hadn't seen one. Just speaking from just kind of the American spirit here. Even if there was like a bomb after we knew that all of this stuff was happening, looking at that, I don't I don't think the passengers of flight 93 would have acted differently. No, no, no. No, no. because if there even if there was the threat of certain death, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um I feel like they even still would have been like, okay. I think that's I mean they they were under threat of certain death. There yeah. is the theory. Okay, so I feel like that's a common misconception, too. There were two men aboard that plane that could have possibly piloted it and landed it. It has become a common theory that that was what they were trying to do, was get those men into the cockpit, or at least one of those men, get them to fly the plane and land it safely. We don't know that for sure. Mm-hmm. We know they were trying to get the plane back, but we really don't know what the end-all intention would be. He could possibly try to land it, but... They knew what happened at the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And and you're also talking about, like I said in a previous episode, um, even something as mainstream as the Mythbusters have proven the fact that even if you have no flight experience, the uh, flight towers, of course this is after 9-11, um, can talk you down um, to land. Um, now... Whether they got control of the cockpit, I'm not entirely sure if they got control of the po- cockpit they or not. They don't know. They don't know 100%. It's believed they got inside the cockpit, but by that point in time, the terrorist, Ziad, had 
pump like push yeah. the plane into a nosedive, and we're gonna talk about that. But and yeah. and once again, going back to the first episode, um, I talked about mistakes being up in the sky. So when you're one mistake up, it depends on the aircraft. But with uh, commercial liners, I believe it's about ten ten thousand feet. So that means that you can make one mistake and still be pretty good. You're two mistakes up, 10,000 feet. 36,000 feet is normal cruising altitude. So you're about three and a half mistakes up um, for that. But these guys, um, when they first got control of the, the cockpit and spiked it up into the air to 40,000, they were four mistakes high, um, which with these people being novice pilots um, would have been fantastic uh, to work with. Now, Oh, but by the time, by the they, time got they got into the, into cockpit, the cockpit, though, yeah, they they're were... they're plummeting. They're they're yeah. they're plummeting. So even if you're anywhere like fifteen hundred feet, two thousand feet, five thousand feet, seven thousand feet, you're you're working with an incredibly small window to move something as big as an airliner that can go transcontinental. Like that is, you you are working with a very very small window. So even if they got control of the cockpit they they got rid of the terrace they were in full control you're you are working with such a small window that i don't know if it would matter and at it was that a point. really small window so they would get control of the well they would start their assault on the hijackers at 9 57 and they were in the ground by 10 03 six minutes six minutes yeah. They didn't have a chance. During this time, Deanna had advised him that there had been two planes that had crashed in the World Trade Center. So he would ask her if they were commercial airliners that crashed in. She said at that point in time they were still un- unidentified. And he replied that the hijackers were talking about crashing this plane. Oh my God, it's a suicide mission. Deanna would later say it sounded like her husband already kind of knew about the other planes. But during his phone calls to his wife, he pumped her for information about what they knew on the ground what was going on with the World Trade Center. Um, Tom That's a good man. Good man for doing that. Just pumping for information, as, as, as much information as you can possibly get. Tom mentioned during this call that the hijackers oh, were talking about also flying the plane into the ground. So I don't know if that was... See, they were really corralling at the back of this plane. So I don't know if that was like a threat of like smarten up or like what the deal was. But I do find it interesting on all four of these flights there was the hijackers just straight up kind of told them what was like we've hijacked the plane or like you know so it's it's interesting yeah at the same time again uh, this is all you know happening within minutes of each other passenger lauren grancolas called her husband jack and left a message on their home answering machine honey are you there jack pick up sweetie Okay, well, I just wanted to tell you I love you. We're having a real problem on the plane. Um, I'm totally fine. Um, I just love you more than anything. Just know that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm uncomfortable and I'm okay for now. Um, just a little problem, so I'll, uh, I, I just love you. Please tell my family I love them, too. At 9.41, Mark tried to call his mother again, but the call was terminated upon a connection. I will say this is the only call I'm going to include in that because if you, there's a whole list on a website I was looking at, I can link it below, Um, but it is just call after call, people sometimes dialing the wrong number, of course, in panic, but also calls just being lost in connection probably because they were in the air and speaking speaking on the the panic sort of things that's why like 
um, with the army, both Canadian and American, we were we were trained to deal with things under duress, under panic, uh, because when you get into that fight or flight scenario, um, your motor skills go down like oh I can't remember it's it's close to like fifty percent or more. Your fine motor skills go down fifty percent or more. So dialing on a phone pad would be almost oh. impossible. Um, so the amount of calls that we have just from this are a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the actions of the passengers are also absolutely insane. Just to force yourself. I mean, forcing yourself to do what these, these passengers only did. Hour. That's what I can't, couldn't get through. Because when you watch or listen to anything on this, it seems like it lasts so long to us. But they only had a half hour. And it's just, it's mind-blowing. It, it's I'm in awe of these people, mm-hmm. honestly. The most prolific call and one of the most famous calls of the day would be made at 943 by Todd Beamer, who was connected to, by airphone to operator Lisa Jefferson. They would remain, like, she, she kept the line open after the, the plane crashed um, for, I believe, 20 minutes. Um, the conversation Lisa says she still plays in her head today over and over again. The FBI was eventually on the other line and offering up guidance. Lisa said, I asked for his name and he told me. And at that point, his voice went up a little bit and he said, we're going down. We're turning around. Oh, I don't know. Jesus, please help us. The two chatted about Beamer's family, his sons, Drew and David. Then he said, my wife is expecting. So we talked. They discovered Jefferson and his wife share the same Christian name. The conversation went from the sublime to the practical. He wanted me to recite the Lord's prayer with him. Then came the psalm with, according to Jefferson, a number of other passengers now joining in as though with a last rite. And I I will say something that's always hit me about United 93 is how eerie it is that when the transcript was released, the terrorists are, pl- are praying to Allah and the passengers are praying to the Christian God. And I feel like it is... I, when you look at, it's interesting, you look at history and um, you can make the argument we worship the same God, you know, and um, I just think it is indicative too of what would end up happening with our country the way it is. Mm-hmm. And um, it just is almost symbolic. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Of it's where a ve- we ended it is up. a very symbolic thing. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know about the Lord's Prayer. Like yeah. that got me teared up a little bit. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Um, so at one point, um, Todd shouts, Lisa, Lisa, and she says, I'm still here, Todd. And he, she says, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll be here as long as you are. At 9.44, Tom he calls his wife, Deanna, again. And this was the last call. He called her for 54 seconds. Um, he told her, a group of us are getting ready to do something, and he may not speak to her again. She begged him to stay seated and stay quiet, because according to her past training as a flight mm-hmm. attendant, that's what you're supposed to do. Yes. And he yelled into the phone, no, no, no. If they're going to drive this plane into the ground, we're going to do something. He told her he was going to get help from his seatmate, from first class and a handful of other passengers. Mark had been just two seats away in 4B. He asked about the kids and I told him that they were having breakfast and wanted to talk to him. And he said, tell them I'll talk to them later. I'll be home tonight. I may be late, but I'll be home. He ended the call by telling her, don't worry, we're going to do something. At 9.46, Linda Groland made a voicemail to her sister, Elsa's answering machine. Elsa, it's Lynn. Um, I only have a minute. I'm on United 93, and it's been hijacked uh, by terrorists who say they have a bomb. 
Apparently they uh, have flown a couple of planes into the World Trade Center already. It looks like they're going to take this one down as well. Mostly I just wanted to say I love you. And I'm going to miss you. And um, these people I love to love. And mostly I just love you. And I just wanted to tell you that. I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to tell you that again or not. Um, and all my stuff is in the safe. The, uh, the safe is in my closet in my bedroom. The combination is you push C for clear and then 0913. And then, uh, and then it should, and maybe pound, and then it should unlock. I love you, and I hope I can talk to you soon. Bye. I don't know how you have the clarity of mind to think of your safe. I, I don't know how she had the composure. Like I keep saying throughout this whole thing, these people are, these like these people are heroes. Flight attendant Cece Lyles had just finished her flight attendant training in January of 2001. She'd actually been a police officer before this at Fort Pierce, Florida, and a detective as well. There is a life-size statue of her in the Fort Pierce area, if you're ever in the area. Um, she called her husband at 9.47. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. Um, I don't know what to say. There's three guys. They've hijacked the plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around. And I've heard that there's planes that have been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. End of message. At 949, passenger Marianne Britton phoned her friend Fred Fuman, Fumano. According to his interview with the FBI, Britton said that her plane had been hijacked and to take down the phone number. He told her not to worry because they were probably just going to take her to some other country. Britton said the hijackers had cut two passengers' throats, and then Fred informed her that two planes had crashed into the World Trade Center. Marianne Britton, she said that they were, they were turning and going to crash. Fred then heard a lot of screaming and the phone went dead. At 9.50, Sandy Bradshaw called her husband, Phil. The FBI interviewed Phil on September 11th, so right on that day. And this is what he said about the conversation with his wife. Sandra asked him if he had seen her, um, what happened today. Phil informed her that two planes had hit the World Trade Center in New York City. Sandy told him that her plane had been hijacked. She continued to state that the plane had been hijacked by three men with dark skin. And Sandra stated they almost looked Islamic. One of the hijackers was seated in first class, and Sandra actually looked at him. This hijacker was a little short guy. The other hijackers were seated in the back of the plane. Sandra, I know, I know. That's interesting, okay. Especially when it comes to people questioning who the hijackers were on this flight. So Sandra only saw the hijackers carrying knives and weapons. All three of the hijackers put red headbands on their heads and were attacking, were hijacking the plane, excuse me. Additionally, Sandra did not know the location of the plane, 
but she thought the plane might be around the Mississippi River because they had just passed over a river. Sandra told Bradshaw that the passengers were getting hot water out of the galley and were going to rush the hijackers. At the end of the telephone call, Sandra told Phil that everyone was running up to first class and she hung up the phone. I just want to mention, so Honor Elizabeth Wayno, um, Wayno, I, I can't pronounce her last name. They do a beautiful job of telling her story over on Friends of United 93 webpage, but she was more concerned about her family than anything when she called at 953 to tell them goodbye and that it was going to be harder on them than it was going to be on her. Um, and she just wanted them to be okay. But at the end of her phone call, she'd been on the phone for a while with her family. She said, they're getting ready to break into the cockpit. I have to go. I love you. Goodbye. So she joined in. A lot of um, the passengers are believed to have disconnected calls to go join in in the revolt. The 9-11 Commission report says that the passenger assault began at 9.57. Todd Beamer, Mark Bingham, Tom Burnett, and Jeremy Glick led the fight against the hijackers, but many more were said to have taken part in it. Todd was still on the phone with Lisa at the time the revolt began. She said that Todd asked if he could be connected with his wife or if that was not possible, if a message could be passed to her to tell her that he loved her. The second airphone operator said that she could hear screams, prayers, exclamations, and the talk of subduing the hijackers at approximately 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, so that would have been 10 a.m. their time. And Todd said that the passengers were about to attack the hijackers. From that point on, Lisa says he was going to have to go out on faith because they were talking about jumping the guy with the bomb. He was still holding the phone, but he was not talking to me. He was talking to someone else, and I could tell he turned away. He said, you ready? Okay, let's roll. Americans till the end, they had actually taken a vote, as I mentioned earlier, on what they were going to do with the plane. Several passengers, like Elizabeth, terminated their calls to join in. In response to the revolt, Ziad began to roll the plane left to right, attempting to knock the passengers off balance. At 9.58, the hijackers began to barricade the cockpit door, according to the black box. We know all of what the, pa the hijackers did because of the black box. Cece Lyles then used her cell phone to call her husband again at 9.58. According to the notes from the FBI agents that interviewed Lauren, her husband, on September 12th, Cece said, Babe, my plane has been hijacked. My plane has been hijacked. Babe, they are forcing their way into the cockpit. They force their way into the cockpit. Babe, I call to tell you I love you. Tell the kids I love them. Oh, Lord, it feels like the plane is going down. Thereafter, Lauren heard a scream in the background, and the phone went dead. At 9.59, Ziad had changed his tactics from rolling the plane to just pitching the plane nose down. He's not just hes not just like, okay, this is the last ditch effort. This is literally trying to he's get these people to... pushed back to the back of the plane. Yeah. So So at an unknown time, Dorothy Garcia, whose wife of passenger Andrew Sonny, so, Sonny, wow, I can't talk today, I'm sorry, Garcia, received a phone call at her California home and heard a single word, Dorothy before the call was disconnected. She believes the cell phone call was placed by her husband aboard Flight 93. At 9.58, passenger Edward Felt used his cell phone to dial 911 and was connected for 70 seconds with the Westmoreland County 911 Center in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. He was connected to the 911 operator. So the FBI transcript of the phone is as callers. He said, hijacking in progress. 911 operator says, excuse me, Hey, somebody's reporting it, and he says again, hijacking in process. And he says, sir, I'm losing you. Where are you at? Edward says, flight 93. And the caller said, or 911 operator says, wait a minute. Wait, United 
Flight 93, United Flight 93, hijacking in process. Okay, where are you at up? Where are you at up? I'm in the bathroom, United 93. Okay, where are you at? I don't know. Where are you at? So they're trying to figure out, like, where are you mm-hmm. over, right? And he says, I don't know where the plane is. Where did you take off at? Newark to San Francisco. 911 operator says, Newark to San Francisco, United Flight 93. I got it. Stay on the phone with me, sir. I'm trying to, at the bathroom, I don't know what's going on. Hey, somebody get FAA, Newark to San Francisco. They got a hijacking in process. Okay, yeah, dude, get somebody from the airport on the line. There is a hijacking in process. Are you still there, sir? Yes, I am. What's your name, sir? Edward Felt. Edward Felt, what's your phone number, sir? Phone number was redacted. Go ahead, phone number redacted again. Tries to get it again. Um, how big of a plane, sir? It's like a 757. This is a 757. Hey, we need, it's a 757. Sir, sir, yes. Okay, how many people on the plane? It was It was pretty empty maybe, and then it's unintelligible what he said. And then the 911 operator is just trying to get him back. Can you hear me, sir? Sir, can you hear me? It's over, there's a plane, and you just can hear the 911 operator trying to make sense of where they're at. At 10 o'clock, Ziad had stabilized the airplane for five seconds, and five seconds later asked in Arabic, is that it? Shall we finish it off? And a hijacker responded, no, not yet. When they all come, we'll we'll finish it off. There's sounds of fighting that continued outside the cockpit. Again, Ziad pitched the nose of the aircraft down, and at 10 o'clock, a passenger in the background said, in the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. 16 seconds later, a passenger yelled, roll it. Ziad stopped the violent maneuvers at about 10.01 and said, Allah is greatest, Allah is greatest. He then asked another hijacker in the cockpit, is that it? I mean, shall we put it down? To which the other replied, yes, put it in, put it in, pull it down. The passengers continued their assault and at 10.02, a hijacker said, pull it down, pull it down. The hijackers remained at the controls but must have judged the passengers were only seconds from overcoming them. That's according to the, I'm reading from the 9-11 commission right now. The airplane handled down. The controller wheel was turned hard right. The airplane rolled onto its back. They were upside down when they hit the ground. And one of the hijackers began shouting, Allah is greatest, Allah is greatest, of course in Arabic. With the sounds of the passengers' counterattack continuing, the aircraft plowed into the empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 580 miles per hour about 20 minutes flying distance from Washington, D.C. With the plane spinning upside down like that, um, that would lead to other conspiracies, um, which I won't get into just yet, uh, but it would lead to other conspiracies uh, as to how the plane could flip upside down like that um, and also why bits and pieces of it were found so far away. From so that's so 580 miles. So for a long time after this, um, I mean, there was just fragments remaining of things. And I've seen some of these fragments. If you go to the 9-11 Memorial, you can see them. I'm sure you saw them because you went to Shanksville. I, w- I went to the 93 uh, with my mom. Yeah, um, there was a lot that survived from it. The thing that was eerious to me was at the 9-11 Memorial in New York. They had a page from the um, United, like, what a, a flight attendant would have, yeah, yeah, and it was how to respond to a hijacking, and it was all burnt up, and it was just really eerie to look at it. What I'm telling you right now is that even planes like commercial airliners with an insane polydihedral, which I went over in the in the first episode, basically it's the uh, where the plane's wings are at. So 
when it comes to commercial airlines, usually their polydihedral or where the wings are at is super high. Um, so that prevents rolling. However, when you're at a super low altitude like they were at, um, and you're traveling just as fast as they were at, and probably raking on the yeah, the controls, whips it. Yeah. Honest, honest to God, anything is possible, and that is why you see all of these bits and pieces of debris 500 miles away, if not, yeah. you know, like people were finding bits of the plane. Human remains. human remains because you you are moving so fast like well the county coroner will talk a little bit about him mm. um but he says like there was nothing like because of how fast it hit and there was even plastic melt com- melting plastic coming down from the treetops yeah from how fast the jet fuel that that ignited the whole thing as well like it was an insane. Thing to come to that day for the locals in that area quite legitimately pieces of that aircraft were probably coming off as they were turning over because the plane was not built to handle no, that, that sort of g-force yeah so you're dealing you were yeah. dealing with an aircraft that is supposed to stay stable if not maybe to like a 45 degree angle now it is completely at 180 um now you are dealing with bits and places coming off that aircraft and the melted plastic and everything like that Fires probably sparked all over it. Uh, the electronics would not be able to keep up with that, but they would still continue to try to keep firing because Isn't nobody it was shutting crazy it off. That cell phones though were able to get down. I that's banana. But it, it is not entirely unfeasible that you're able to make make and, contact. But at the same yeah. time, I mean, like that was when they rolled it. So when I first heard about it, and when you told me about it, I pictured them being. Being at like uh like twenty six thousand feet or like twenty thousand feet rolling this thing and I'm like no it was closer to the ground because he he pitched it right yeah, yeah yeah and then and then he stabilized for a second and I would be interested to find out where where like what height if they know because they lost him for a bit on the transponder um where he stabilized it at and then he pitched it again and and rolled it um, which is incredibly low. So they lost him on transponder. Yeah, so we're about to go through a little bit of what was going on. FAA is aware United 93 has been hijacked, right? Okay, mm-hmm. Ben Sliney, he is on his first day on September 11 as FAA's National Operations Manager, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, he, at 9.42, made that unprecedented call that we didn't see again until just a couple weeks ago. I guess it would have been last month, um, where he said, everybody land, like we're down. Yep. Um, clear airspace kind of thing, right? Okay. Which good on him. Yeah. Just get everyone he down. He said he didn't even know if he was technically allowed to make. I mean, he's on his first day. And he's <laughs> I like, would have. I one hundred percent agree with that decision. I, I think don't care. too. If anyone is interested in the movie United ninety three that came out, not Flight ninety three, United ninety three that came out in two thousand six, he plays himself in that movie, and it's very accurate um, to what happened. Um, but a minute after 9.46, there was that, that we played it in another episode where they're like, should we get the military involved in this? Like, it's very dismissive. It's like, holy shit, guys. Yeah, you should. Because we got two planes in the World Trade Center, one plane in the fucking Pentagon. Mm-hmm. What is, and these guys are headed to Washington. Mm-hmm. Hello. Somebody's going to have to make probably in the next 10 minutes. 
So at 9.53, they lose all sights of United 93 over Pittsburgh. Okay, so now aircraft are doing what they were doing with American 11, mm -hmm. where they're looking in the air for it. So that's when they lose them. The Ziad had turned the transponder off. We believe it was Ziad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one aircraft did witness the plane rocking side to side when he was... Yeah. A plane side? Mm -hmm. United 93? Yes was waving his wings as he went past the, v the VFR aircraft. They don't quite know what that means. Rocking his ring wings. So just a few minutes later, there's speculation. It, it, they were down, but there's mm -hmm. speculation from air traffic control that United 93 is down because there's a plume of smoke in the air, and you can hear the confusion um, and everything, and they're asking, you know, is it from the plane? Is it from the ground? What's the deal here? Okay, uh, there is now on the United 93. Yes. There is a report of black smoke in the, in the last position I gave you, 15 miles south of Johnstown. Uh, from the airplane or from the ground? Uh, they're speculating it's from the aircraft. Okay. Uh, who, it, it hit the ground. That's, okay. what they're, that's what they're speculating. It's speculation only. Okay. So NEADS, the Northeast Air Traffic Defense, they received the first call from the military liaison at Cleveland Center at 10.07. So United oh 93 is down. They are unaware that the aircraft has already crashed, and they were unable to find its location because of this. That's when the military starts to look for United 93. <laughs> oh, okay. But at okay. the same time, even if they found it, at that point in time, we still don't have the shoot-down order. 1527 mode 3. We've got a track number? 1527 mode 3. We've got a track number? Okay, we got a mode three on this uh, United 93. How close are you? And straight and down. 3951 North. 07846 West. Got it. Toledo was, look for him. Okay, I need a track number. Okay, hey, Dean. Weapon? Okay, two air, two, apparently the United States will be airborne less than 20 minutes. Pittsburgh, mode 3, 1527. Any weapons? We don't know. We'll press with that. We have anybody committed on the aircraft with the bomb on it? We're getting to it. We don't know where it is. We're, we're getting track on it. weapons. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Negative. Negative clearance to shoot. Jamie. 1527, Brian. God damn it. <laughs> Foxy. I'm not really worried about code words. Fuck the code words. That's perishable information. Negative clearance to fire. ID type tail. So let's start talking about the shoot down order. So as we mentioned in our previous episodes, the military would claim even if United 93 had made it into Washington airspace, it never would have made it to its target because they would have taken it out because they already had the F-16s in the air headed from Langley. They wouldn't have because the F-16s were 100 miles away from where United 93 ended up 
crashing. Vice President Dick Cheney made the call, which he shouldn't have. Before we get into this, like, just think of what, I mean, now I think it seems like it's like, well, yeah, that's what they had to do was shoot down a passenger aircraft. But think of that order. That's unprecedented. We are shooting at our own people. We're killing civilians. So the president, President Bush at the time, told the 9-11 Commission that he was frustrated that day with the poor communications of that morning. He could not reach Secretary Rumsfeld. And I do want to mention, I don't think I mentioned before, there was speculation Secretary Rumsfeld might have been dead, the Secretary of Defense, um, because of the Pentagon. Um, so they couldn't reach him for forever. And what he was actually doing was he was there helping civilians and helping I those government workers. That. Yeah, um, so he was actually being very helpful. The problem is, is for his stature, the, the chair that he held, it wasn't helpful. Oh my God. He should have been in access. That's... For, like, as a human, he did the right thing. But as the Secretary of Defense, he should have been more accessible. A lot of people give Stephen Harper crap about the whole oh, assassination when, okay, so thing Stephen, and all the rest of it. Stephen Harper was Prime Minister of Canada a while ago, and there was that, um, it was, I think it was a shooter, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, That yeah. was going through Ottawa in Canada, which is the capital, if you don't know, and um, he hid in a closet. And there was a lot of shit given to him at the time, but he's head of the country. This, like, is, the, this is the Secretary of Defense you were talking about. This is literally third in command of the entirety of the United States of America and first, first in command for the armed forces. So when you talk about this person, he should not, he should not. You should have been hiding much like... Um, Stephen Harper was during the shooting that was happening in Ottawa. And just speaking of hiding, so when um, they knew an aircraft was coming into Washington, the Secret Service literally picked Dick Cheney up and he was just like helping them along with this. <laughs> I'm sorry. The picture of Dick Cheney doing that is absolutely hilarious. I'm sorry. <laughs> so get this. They arrive at the conference room, what's known as the conference room, shortly before 10, around 9.58. We now know that that's the bunker, but get this, Marcus. Okay, before September 11th, we had never had to use the bunker. So when American 77 crashed into the Pentagon, Dick Cheney and his Secret Service members were still crouched outside of the bunker because no one had the fucking keys to it. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic that government. That is... That's classic. We, we were not prepared for an attack on our soil. <laughs> No, we weren't. Because no, what, if, we weren't. what if they had hit the what if they had hit the White House? Like Dick Cheney be dead. Dick would be dead. That poor Texas uh, uh, lawmaker would have been uh, uh, a lawyer. safe. Yeah, yeah, he would have been safe from the um, Partridge incident. Which, by the way, he just recently died. I saw that when looking at it for photos. Yeah, which, by the way, what a slap in the face to that lawyer to. Have I recently researched all of his cases and all the rest of it? He had a phenomenal track record. Really, a ridiculous and track record. And what he's known for However, is that Dick Cheney shot him during a and not only hunting that, accident. but when he died, all of his obituaries read the lawyer from Texas that was shot well. By now Dick we have to have an episode dedicated to him because we've spent so much time just talking about how he I was will shot not let that man. I will not <laughs> let that man's name die. Legacy. Yes. legacy as a lawyer must be remembered. So Dick Cheney says, he states, shortly after arriving into the bunker, he was told that the Air Force was trying to establish a combat air patrol over Washington. Okay, they're trying to get in touch with him. He then states that he called the president to discuss the rules of engagement, saying 
the president signed off on shooting down any aircraft they believed to be hijacked. Mm -hmm. So there is no record of this call ever taking place. Although the president would later say he remembered it, and not only the president, but Condoleezza Rice would also say she remembered the phone call happening. But guess who doesn't? Mrs. Cheney. She was seated right by Dick Cheney. She has no recollection of that call. That is dirty. That is lies. Like That literally stinks. Like, that glows. I can see it from here. I... I was saying to mom when I was reading this script, I do I think the president would have given that order at that point in time? Yes. Um, I think Donald Rumsfeld also would have given that order. And at it's that a completely understandable order. However, if you are not in the position to do that, you do not give that order. And you should be held to accountability if you did give that order. I mean, I think the reason he's not and that this hasn't been looked into more is that United 93 was able to take themselves out and that this wasn't an an issue for them because Mm -hmm. this also happened much later after United 93 had already crashed. However, he should have been held accountable and he never was. And we know he lied. Like, this is just, he fucking lied. There was no, there's no record of this call. There's no record. His wife was seated right by him. When the FBI questioned her, she had no idea about it. Well, he did authorize a shoot down at 1018, okay? That wouldn't reach the military until 1031. I don't know why, but they didn't hear it until 1031. United 93 was already down by 1003. And so I think that's disrespectful, too, of our military to say that they would have interceded and they would have, like, saved the day if the passengers hadn't. That's a bold-faced lie. It wouldn't have happened. And during this whole thing, during this whole commission, everything I've heard from Danielle and everything that I have read on my own makes it sound like our generals, our captains, that we know exactly what to do and everything like that. We don't. And 9-11 is a stark reminder as to why we don't know exactly what we're doing. So shortly after they arrived at the secret... They arrived at the bunker, excuse me. The Secret Service informed them of another hijacked aircraft. So this is before the order was given. They informed them they believed the plane was still in the air. It wasn't. It was United 93 they were talking about. And the aide told Cheney that the aircraft was, quote, unquote, 80 miles out. The report said Cheney was asked for authority to engage the aircraft. His reaction was described by Scooter Libby as quick and decisive, quote, and about the time it takes a batter to decide to swing, unquote. To kill U.S. citizens, he's the only one giving this order. Like, let's be real. They lied about that phone call. Mm. And he's just like, yeah, do it. So the vice president authorized fighter aircraft to engage the inbound plane. He told us he based this authorization on his earlier conversation with the president. Now, if Flight 93 had not been stopped, because it was not stopped by our U.S. military, right? If it had not been stopped by those on board, it would have reached the Capitol or the White House between 1013 and 1023. And this order did not make it to the military until 1031. As um, Garrett Graff said, I mentioned his podcast, I think in the last episode, but maybe in this episode, because we've been kind of cutting a little bit. Um, he, he said in his podcast, the U.S. government did not take one single action that changed that day. Not one. And the only way we could communicate with those aircraft, for the most part, was through the FAA. And so we worked hand in glove with the FAA in order to make that work. Well, I, I appreciate uh, you, you wanting not to, to, to bash the FAA, but my God, I mean, the Cleveland Center said somebody needs to notify the military to scramble planes, and they didn't. Uh, you know, you, you, you would have had an additional 30 minutes of, of notification. Now, as it turns out, the passengers on 93 uh, 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 took care of it for us. but. 
it's you know, I, I don't think I don't consider it to be bashing just to say to him, my God, you guys should have notified us and didn't. Um, and that's a fairly significant breakdown. I want to dive much more into this. So this isn't the end of Flight 93. Like if you like, listen, I mean, what we have dove into for the last four flights this is not it. And I haven't even touched on the fifth it's flight yet. It's not even close to it. It's not even. So, like, I mean, do your own research. That's why we do these videos. And I'll see you guys next week. Because if this is a three-parter, I will be releasing them week after week. Wow. I'm assuming Things, it's going to be a three-parter. This has been a whole day of us filming. Yes. So this is where we're at today. And she's got to go to work again. So everybody and wish her luck. stories. Yes. <laughs> she gets to talk more at work. See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.